Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. The concept of religious liberty is simple enough. Keep the church and state separate. The reality is a little more complicated. We've got church leaders, presidential candidates, and even the president himself blurring the line between the two. I've asked Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, to join us today to talk about how the concept of religious liberty needs to be approached and what we can do as individuals and as a society to help keep the wall of separation standing and strong. Lincoln, the time is yours. Okay, let's go with it. The wall of separation. Yes. Didn't you tell me they're doing some sort of wall changes <laughs> and roof changes <laughs> at your home? They're <laughs> working on the roof of my studio, so we may hear some pounding in here, yes. You know, well, I travel a lot and stay in hotels, and it, it amazes me. Most walls, while they look substantial, you can, you can hear an awful lot from the other side. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> I've true. never actually had anyone walk through the plaster at me, but <laughs> I've sometimes felt like I was staying in a communal dwelling, as yes. I've heard. Everything from murder plots to, uh, well, we won't even talk about what else. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but yes, the world of separation, which is not mentioned in the Constitution, but is uh, an expression that as early as Thomas Jefferson's time, he used it to describe what they intended by the First Amendment. During this build-up to the U.S. presidential election, I've just been amazed, though, at how permeable that wall is. <laughs> yes. And, of course, in some ways it must be, because when we talk about a wall or, or any other figurative thing, you know, we, we mustn't confuse, as some people do, the, the figure that's invoked with the reality that you're trying to explain. You know, a wall is solid. Real world is not. You know, yes. people talk yes. to each other. The society uh, flows where it will. And, and it would be absolutely impossible to sequester politicians and church-inclined people and, you know, never let, let them communicate. So we know that that's not – well, not only shouldn't happen, it can't happen. But in this campaign, I've just been amazed to, to listen to the politicians pitching their wares, and, and I think in our era more than most, certainly as much as any, politicians – spin a fanciful yarn there's this often very little reality in what they say by my by my lights i mean other people may be quite impressed by it and it seems to me that they're as willing to use religion as they are any other device to catch the interest and support of voters now do you think the framers of the constitution and the people that made these amendments concerning religious freedom do did you think in the back of their mind they they figured this wall would be a flexible wall or are they thinking it should be a solid wall well, some of them wanted it flexible. We know that Patrick Henry, you know, he was seriously pushing for religion and, and religious sensibilities to be in government, but it's most significant that he didn't get his way. Mm -hmm. Others didn't much like it. And I think those that got their way, which was the majority, no, really didn't expect uh, open religious talk in civil chambers, which they didn't get in, in, in England. We, we tend to forget that most of what they did was sort of a, a model on what they knew from their English heritage. And except for the, 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 the period of Oliver Cromwell, which I've spoken about on this program many times, yes. you know, the general run of political dialogue in, in England was incredibly secular, even though they had the House of Lords where many churchmen sat. 
but you can look at the uh, the discussions there, and they they nary had a religious tinge. I mean, it was it was uh, most secular, most logical and rational, and and every day they they just didn't mix the two. So no, I don't think those that set up the United States much thought that there would be ongoing religious talk, and the ones that were sensitive to it, like James Madison. Who who really birthed the the amendments? Anyhow, he was asked to bring in these these Bill of Rights, but he you know he held forth against the fact that they'd appointed a chaplain. Uh, you know they they were concerned for their own spiritual well-being, so they they wanted someone to say prayer now and then. And, and to this day, we have a Senate and a, a congressional chaplain. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want that, and some of them were, were pretty uh, blasé about it. But beyond that, you can't find evidence that they spoke much about religion. But today, whoa. You know, we had another program the other day, and President Obama's using Bible text to justify a thoroughly unbiblical moral stance, which may be good for the good or the bad of the country. We'll see, but it's it's certainly uh, not in harmony with most people's view of religion, but he's using religion to justify it. Bizarre. Mm. The thing that's caught my interest in the last few days was uh, Governor Romney, the uh, Republican uh, candidate, and he spoke at Liberty University in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia and laid out his his agenda and he didn't you know uh, preach a sermon but he was preaching to the faithful mm-hmm. in fact uh, the older i get the more i realize that history goes in in sweeping similarities <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitating to use you know it repeats itself it doesn't directly but you know what was it uh, 10 years ago that uh, no 11 years ago that george bush spoke there mm-hmm at Liberty University, kicking off his campaign for the presidency and created a huge furor when his uh, primary uh, uh, opposition candidate, Senator McCain, said that this was improper for him to speak there. Hmm. We've gone a long way past that. We certainly have. But but, uh, it seemed very proper to uh, Governor Romney to speak there because this would confirm him as the the acceptable candidate for the religious uh, faction, the conservative religious faction in the United States. We'll see whether that's uh, happened. But it was amazing to read his speech where he danced over all of the, uh, you know, the moralities that these religious people have in common. And, you know, they're, they're reasonable things. And it was nothing wrong that he mentioned them. But in total... It's sort of suspect that a politician needs to pass spiritual muster. And I think that the reason for that, and we've talked about it on the program before, I think the reason for that is that we are under the impression that we are a Christian nation and we deserve or require a Christian uh, president, which you know would be fine and good. And you have said before that, yes, it would be nice if our president operated under Christian ideals. But we should not make it a litmus test. We should not make it a requirement of our leadership that they go to church every week, that they believe a certain way, that they have faith that we have. Why is that so dangerous to do? What is the problem with us requiring that of our leader? We require that of our, of our kids. We require that of our spouse. We require that of our, of our parents. We look for that in our neighbors and in our community. Why can't we use the religious filter to pass our presidential candidates and our president through? It's a loaded question, but I think the, 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 the shorthand answer is if we did that, we would pretty much have a national pope. <laughs> and <laughs> okay, and uh, yes. then you would need to look at what is the majority religious viewpoint to decide mm-hmm. what the orthodox established church would be. Mm-hmm. Probably wouldn't be Mormon. 
they're not the majority. Mm-hmm. Not impossible that a, that a Mormon religionist could uh, do the politician's trick and convince the majority of, I'm trying to think how to define them, patriots who have a, a, a Bible in their back pocket along with their bullets. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I better be careful. I got a bummer in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, my. But, you know, it's possible that there could be some sort of national spirituality invoked by someone as off-center for, for the yeah. politically active religious viewpoint as, mm-hmm. as, as uh, the governor. Yeah. But it just leads in the wrong direction. It's, it's church establishment. But worse, if the, the actual leader and his agenda was of a particular religious viewpoint and, and expected to be important, in essence, you would have mm-hmm. something akin to a religious dictator. Yeah. Maybe and, that's a strong word, but it yeah. would be like, again, in England, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord High Protector with the religious mandate. No, we, we don't want that. I, rem- I remember that type of uh, paranoia that swept through a lot of the religious community when John F. Kennedy became president. Here was a Catholic, and here was a, a strong Catholic, and we thought, oh boy, here goes. We're going to be all turned into Catholics here, and we're going to have the Pope as our president. You're absolutely right. Well, and it could have been an unfortunate year if he had uh, uh, given in to the uh, inclinations of his church. He didn't. No, he didn't. Uh, in retrospect, and we've talked about it before, you know, he... he uh, very appropriately and, and, and loudly proclaimed there would be separation of church and state, that all religions would be allowed to flourish, favoritism for none and so on. It was, it was good. It's worth mentioning again here that his church, which has the same theology now, but you know, a different worldview, I guess, is saying through many of its uh, leaders that, that they wouldn't allow such a neutral stance anymore, that mm. if their uh, candidate became president, they would sort of hold him more to the church's account. Well, you know, it's their right to do so, but the state can't allow that to happen. What I mean is the, the church can influence its members whichever way it wants. And if they don't uh, hew to the church's line, they can be uh, separated. You know, they can be anathematized as far as the Catholic Church, but, you know, it has no right anymore to burn someone at the stake. And, and certainly the state has no right to reward or punish someone because of their religious uh, identity. And, and, of course, the Constitution in one of the articles says no religious test for public office. So they were very, very calculated about that. Isn't the Catholic Church taking direct aim at that wall then, that wall of separation? If they're saying we will not allow our next opportunity to slip by, we are going to make sure that our agenda is is put through in the government circles? They are, although they're not openly saying that they want to break down the, the wall. And in fact, today I answered an email from somebody where I reminded them of something that is little known. The Catholic Church, and of course it's not monolithic as far as its members' mm-hmm. interaction to, to the state. And, and, and in North America, the, the Catholic Church sometimes is quite rebellious to Rome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's certain guiding doctrinal principles, as any church would have. And the, the Roman Catholic Church has stated something that most people haven't really noticed. While in, in their everyday dealings, they're very careful to uh, abide by the, the First Amendment and the general principles of religious freedom. They're not persecuting other religions. In fact, in this discussion at the moment, we could more easily identify some of the right-wing Protestants as, as of a persecutory nature toward Romney. That's true. <laughs> you know, I think that's very unfortunate. But So the Roman Catholic Church is not doing that. But they have a view that they've restated called subsidiarity. And, and it's really a, a fancy way of saying what in many church documents they say, where the church is preeminent. It holds 
not just spiritual authority, but since that it, it represents God on earth, it in essence holds authority over the state. So even when they're not actually coming in on the state trying to influence it, they hold themselves superior. The state is a subordinate power. Mm-hmm. And, and so any time uh, you allow such, such a church too close a role to power, they're going to influence that, perhaps in subtle ways even. Yeah. Not, you know, they're not in a position, and we're in the 21st century, and society doesn't easily work that way where someone sort of says, this is what the Pope or someone says, you know, this is the mandate of the Mother Church, do it or else. Yeah. No, I don't think so, but, but there's an assumption and, and an action all the time that, that here it is, is a power above and beyond and, and that the state uh, really should pay notice to them and do things that are in agreement. Ergo, the, uh, the health mandate, I think that's what we saw there. Their right was to be unquestioned. Uh, merely because this church held this view, the whole state was expected to come in line. That really was the subtext of what was going on there. It wasn't just that Catholics be allowed to do this. They'd be allowed to project this to society. And that's a little beyond freedom of choice. That's really uh, having the state come into compliance with the religious viewpoint. There's a difference between compliance and accommodation to someone's own practice. talking with Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, our topic today, the wall of separation, that all-important barrier between church and state. We need to keep it strong. But uh, Lincoln says that in the past, and it seems in the present, we, we seem to be doing our level best to to break through that barrier, or at least to perforate it, so that uh, we can squeeze presidential candidates through it and uh, certain types of monies through it. Lincoln as we watch this barrier become Swiss cheese, basically, what do we need to do as individuals? What do we need to do as churches? What do we need to do as citizens of this country to try to shore up what's left and to re-strengthen what's been lost? Well, there's not much we can do legally because the Constitution hasn't been overturned. <laughs> this is just a change in societal attitude, and in particular, a change in how some of the church-based, uh, either church groups themselves or factions that purport to represent, uh, you know, a direct amount of their constituency, how mm-hmm. they're reacting to this. And, and you can't just snap your fingers and, and have it go away. I think we're in a leavening process. And sooner or later, if we're not careful, this sort of pent-up desire to, uh, to act otherwise than the Constitution may become a, a reality, not just an agitation. That's really my fear. I mean, clearly at the moment, religious freedom in the United States is is uh, secure. I wouldn't say it's about to be taken away. At the margins, it's being worried to death. And we know in the workplace, uh, Seventh-day Adventists particularly, since that's my viewpoint, and, and others who are out of the, the religious mainstream have, have great trouble being accommodated. The law allows for accommodation, but the prejudice and the and all the little legal hurdles that are laid out for them can make it very, very hard. So in that regard, it's not great, 
but it's not radically worse than it's been for a long time. It's just sort of bleeding away slowly. And, and on the larger sense, you know, we still allow uh, you know, mosques in, in New York City, even though it offends a huge number of people. We allow people to, to preach and, and share on the TV and the radio some egregious doctrines that, that other people find offensive. And, and, you know, back to our original point, we, we, we do allow a person of a religious faith like uh, Governor Romney that, that others find seriously offensive. That's great. So religious freedom is not gone. But as it's been said by, uh, you know, the pioneers of the U.S., uh, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. It, it, it's not static. It, it, unless you're positively defending something, it can go the other direction. And uh, we, we, we have a lot of worrisome signs. It would be nice if it was just a reflex, standard assumption of society and of the Constitution. But I think there are many who would like to see it otherwise. And, and the reason I'm picking on the Catholic Church is not that they're great offenders now, but they have a baseline ideology or, yeah. or yeah. theology that, while it's in abeyance now, you know, it's, it's, it's rather an ideological antithesis of what the Constitution says, just like Islam. Same thing with Islam. You know, Muslims have every right to, to have their belief and to practice it, but at root, there is no separation of church and state with Islam. So, you, you know, there's a rather irreconcilable difference there. Same with the Roman Catholic Church. I think Protestantism, coming out of you know, largely a Catholic uh, background and having to think things through and then uh, being birthed at the time of the uh, Enlightenment, has, has really come to grips with it. And, and of course, freedom of religion is, is a very Protestant viewpoint. Yes. But on these other two great religions, Catholicism is yeah. a subset within Christianity. It likes to think it's the only thing, but yeah. it's not really. And, and Islam, I think we have uh, cautionary areas there because their own view, and the more they pay attention to it, will be a stress toward the, the model that the United States has adopted. One of the things I know that Liberty Magazine does on a yearly basis uh, to try to inform and to move and motivate people toward the uh, holding up of the church-state separation is to have uh, dinners, and I understand there's one on schedule for this year. Absolutely, and, but as a preface to that, since we're talking about separation of church and state, yeah. there's something that... That happens in Washington and has, uh, I think, for about 30, 40 years, they've had a national prayer breakfast. Mm -hmm. And the president, whoever he is, often speaks there. You know, that in itself is no, no threat to the separation of church and state because that is not a government event. Hmm. It's organized by a Protestant faction that has become uh, more interfaith and, and, and multi-faith. As you know, it's the right of a public official to talk about their faith as long as it's not mixing policy and, and, and the faith becomes a policy direction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that, that vein, our, our Seventh-day Adventist Church has people that are in regular contact with government, not as lobbyists, but as communicators of, of, of our viewpoint. And to further that, we thought seven years ago now, yeah, I think we're on a seventh, uh, we thought that it would be a good idea to have a, a, a dinner, a liberty dinner in Washington where we could invite some of the politicians, uh, the uh, diplomatic community, the other church groups who are, and there are many of them who are working for religious freedom, invite them together, have a dinner together, have a, a major speaker, often a political leader, and give some awards and recognition for what others are doing nationally and internationally for religious liberty. And it's been very successful, very successful. 
For several years, we held it in the Russell Senate Caucus Room, the government uh, uh, assembly room where the, the Watergate hearings were held and, and yeah. the uh, Titanic uh, hearings were held even. You know, a lot of history there. And we had Senator McCain. We had uh, then-Senator um, Hillary Clinton and, and John Kerry and, uh, and a few others. Uh, you know, we tried to be bipartisan and, 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 and alternate at the well, almost alternate between conservative and liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the criteria is either someone of national note who's willing to speak on religious liberty or someone within that party that has distinguished themselves by uh, leading out in religious freedom. Like we had Congressman Trent Franks, who, who heads up a religious liberty uh, commission in Congress. Uh, so it's been very successful, and we've typically had about 200 people. Not that we couldn't get more, but the room only held 200. <laughs> and a few dozen uh, embassy uh, officials, m- many of them ambassadors. And so it's continued well. We moved for a little while to the Washington Hilton. But this year, it's going to be a very special event. And I'm glad you gave me the opening for this. And it's actually just next week, as we're recording this, on the Thursday, at the Canadian Embassy. Hmm. And most embassies in Washington, certainly, and, and in any major city around the world or any major country, would be showcase edifices because the country wants to put itself forward in a good way. But the Canadian embassy is just amazing. It's on Pennsylvania Avenue, just a few yards downstream from uh, the U.S. Capitol on that main broad thoroughfare, a uh, modern facade on, on the main street, and it looks directly at the Capitol. And we, we're going to have a reception there on the second level through a, a, a wide facade of windows. You look straight out on the Capitol. I mean, it's wow. just a million-dollar view. And then downstairs in an assembly area, we're going to meet, and we'll have an address by Minister Baird, who is the foreign minister for the Canadian government. He's basically second in command for Canada. Mm-hmm. So we're recognizing Canada, and they're allowing us to use their facility. But the, it's not just a random thing. Canada is a very special neighbor to the United States. They share a lot of our same values, not quite the same constitution, <laughs> but a lot of the same heritage from, from England in the beginning. But right now, the Canadian government are in the process of forming, and they've recently announced, and I think next year it really comes to fullness, a, a department or a... Um, I'm trying to think how to describe it. It's a new uh, religious freedom office. Hmm. I know they're doing it somewhat with donations from, uh, I think, the Aga Khan, believe it or not. But it's designed to be a a very special agency of the Canadian government to watch out for the religious freedom of all minorities in Canada, but also to to project that around the world. And I've been reading their press reviews, and they are very aggressive on this. They're speaking to many of the international religious liberty issues. They keep saying over and over again that they want this office to be functional, not just a symbolic office. Mm-hmm. They're, they're really putting efforts toward it. So the, uh, this occasion will give a chance for the foreign minister to uh, explain this in detail. We will be uh, uh, incorporated into their plans. We will honor them, uh, him as the speaker and, and Canada as, as the agency for really doing something special. We'll have a dinner together. We'll give those few other awards that I mentioned. And, and I think the net effect, of course, from Seventh-day Adventists will show that we are front and center in pushing for religious freedom from our perspective. But it'll show that we're part of a bigger operation, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. organizations, but even entire sovereign states.
see how important religious freedom is. You know, when you tell me this, I'm going, Canada? What does Canada have a problem with religious freedom? Is there, are there issues up there that, that they are dealing with? You don't hear too much coming out of Canada in, in the world of most anything, as a matter of fact. Well, they have problems, but overall, Canada is just as free as the United States. There's yeah, no question. Yeah. It's a very liberal uh, mindset on, on allowing uh, the rights of, of individuals and groups. They are under great stress because uh, the United States sees itself as a nation of immigrants, which it was. But I think at this late point, Canada is probably bringing in more diverse groups of people than the U.S. is, and in probably uh, greater numbers, or at least from some of those diverse groups. Right. Maybe not in absolute pure numbers of, yeah. of new residents, but proportion of their population very high. And, and, you know, they take from countries the U.S. won't even uh, touch. You know, we, our sensibilities now with the uh, war on terror have become quite extreme. I don't know that most Americans even realize that for, for years we have refused to let Iraqis in, even though we despoiled their country and put many people at risk by allying themselves with us. Just as in Vietnam, you know, many Vietnamese refugees had to come to the U.S. because they were translators and, right. and, and workers for the U.S. So when they left, they either had to come with us or they'd be killed. Same with many Iraqis. But we've held a hard line on allowing those people to leave. But Canada is not. But that means that they've had to face uh, uh, some serious issues about practice of religion and cultural sensibilities and so on. And, and I think they've done quite well to this point. Well, I think that is a marvelous choice then to have this uh, dinner, yeah. this Liberty Dinner there Absolutely. in the Canadian Embassy. Wonderful. So we want we want to acknowledge what they're doing. They have good intentions. Uh, you know, we're not responsible for everything they do or don't do, but anybody of, of of good intention would have to applaud what they're doing. And so this this is just to come together with them and to uh, applaud them and to listen what they plan on doing. And it sounds like they want to be preemptive on this. They want to make sure they have in place what they need to deal with this kind of influx. Absolutely. So this is the, the latest. Uh, we, we'll do it next year. Don't, at this point, I don't know where it will be. If we have any ambassadors listening to this program, call up and you can volunteer your embassy. <laughs> no, I'm being a little facetious. But it is possible that we could go to another country. There are other countries that are doing good things. Uh, it's, it's worth remembering, apart from all of the other discussion on religious liberty, that the United States is not the only country that's interested in religious liberty. And while it may be part of a, an increasingly uh, select group of countries that have pretty unalloyed religious liberties, not the only one, not the only one by any means, but other Western countries particularly are struggling in ways that the U.S. has not yet with uh, multiculturalism, with the people movements like in Europe where they've got huge populations coming in that, that not only have a different culture but won't give it up and are, are forcing it right, on right. culture very much involves religion often, especially traditional cultures. The religion and the culture is more than wedded, it's, it's molded together. Well, Lincoln, thank you very much for bringing us up to date on this Religious Liberty Dinner coming up. If you want more information, listener, about this dinner and past dinners uh, and future dinners as well, you can go to www.libertymagazine.org. Absolutely. All right, our time has flown by. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone.
You've been listening to LifeQuest Liberty. To further explore the issues discussed on today's program, visit www.LibertyMagazine.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of religious freedom burning in your heart today.